2: I want all of you to get up out
4: of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore!
5: We must not allow ourselves
2: to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I'm kidding, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something
6: whole parade of what man's carved out for of after centuries of fighting. You're
2: out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you will atone. Hey there! Welcome, welcome! What a busy weekend and uh, even Friday, just as the show was wrapping, beleaguered special rapporteur, David Johnson finally did the right thing and resigned amidst uh, near universal criticism of his role in looking into communist Chinese interference in Canadian elections. And we really didn't have time to get into that. I mean, it happened just as we were wrapping up the show on Friday. What else happened on the weekend? The bomber died. Ted Kaczynski, Theodore Kaczynski. Uh, at the age of 81 of an apparent suicide. So much going on. Let me get back to um, David Johnson for a minute, though. I mean, every major newspaper columnist, every opposition MP in the House of Commons was calling him out for his. Obvious conflict of interest, Johnson steadfastly refused to step away from his role. He declined to call for a a public inquiry. His report was incomplete, inadequate. He failed to mention the Trudeau Foundation even once in his report. Despite the uh, troubling donations to the Trudeau Foundation from communist Chinese officials, he never even bothered to call Elections Canada. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't that have been one of his first calls? If you're looking into election interference, call Elections Canada. I mean, he proved to be an abject failure. And then he refused to accept that his involvement was completely inappropriate to begin with, given his longstanding friendship with the Trudeau family and the crime minister. He even lied about that. And then he he wagged his sanctimonious finger at the media and Canadians in general for daring to question his integrity. So finally, he got the message and he's gone. So what happens next? Maybe we'll finally get a public inquiry? Sort of, maybe. I mean, as long as the leader of the Marxist Leninist party, Jugmeet Singh, continues to prop up this corrupt liberal regime, Socks Trudeau can, can and will continue to thumb his nose at Canadians. And if I were a betting man, I would bet that Sox might finally relent and call for a public inquiry, but he'll just appoint some other faithful liberal supporter donor, some liberal hack. That's how much contempt Trudeau has for the country, for parliament, for Canadians He can do whatever he wants and get away with it. So watch for it. There'll be another liberal sycophant who'll deliver another liberal whitewash. Also on Friday, we had that large protest against gender ideology in Canada's schools taking place up in Ottawa. Billboard Chris, Chris Elston was on the show last Thursday to talk about it. He's here again today. And uh, Billboard's Supporters, parents of all different faiths were there, and of course they were incredibly peaceful, just as he had hoped. There were a a few isolated incidents of violence from the left, of course. There was an Antifa protester that pushed a Muslim woman to the ground. That's a good look for the left. Thankfully, police uh, in Ottawa acted very quickly and uh, they pounced on any of these lefty thugs that were trying to make trouble. So this is uh, this is very encouraging to see so many protesters. And it's also very encouraging to sit to see, I must say, Muslim parents allying with Christian parents, Jewish parents, parents from all of the three great religions coming together to protest against the sexualizing of children, the grooming of children, the indoctrination of our children in schools. So it feels like we could be turning the corner. It feels like the tide is slowly beginning to turn. Last week I told you about New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, who at that time was reevaluating something in that province called Policy 713 which has to do with gender ideology in public schools. And Higgs has, to his credit, announced that parents now will be notified. Teachers must notify parents if their children are using a different pronoun or a name in school than assigned at birth. I mean, this is a no-brainer, of course, but it's also a big win for parental rights. He also ordered schools to make available gender-neutral washrooms, which means no more biological males in in girls' washrooms or change rooms in uh, New Brunswick schools. So another victory for common sense and decency. And predictably, he's being widely criticized in the downstream media and by the moral cowards in his own caucus. And then there was the uh, reaction from the trust fund brat, Sox Trudeau. You know, it's funny. He's always talking about how important it is to be nonpartisan about this and that and how conservatives are the ones who are always engaging in negative politics and mudslinging. So how does Sox react to Premier Blaine Higgs' announcement vis-a-vis Policy 713? Well, at a fundraiser on Friday for some LGBTQ charity, Trudeau said, We're seeing that angry, hateful rhetoric rise on our continent, particularly targeting trans people. Far-right political actors, he said, far-right political actors are trying to outdo themselves with the types of cruelty and isolation they can inflict on these already vulnerable people. That's Trudeau being nonpartisan. That's Trudeau. Not engaging in mudslinging, I guess. So Trudeau has basically labeled all parents who demand their God-given parental rights. He's labeling them far-right actors. Seriously? As a parent, if you insist that your children are your children, that you have an obvious right to be informed about whether your child has some confusion about their gender or if they have some underlying mental illness, which is what gender dysphoria is, then suddenly you're a far-right extremist, according to Sox Trudeau. What's next? Is he going to have CSIS or the RCMP spy on parents who show up at school board meetings? Is that next? What else happened on Friday? Oh, yes, uh, the indictment against former President Trump. That was unsealed on Friday. 37 felony charges for supposed mishandling of classified documents. And U.S. Attorney John O'Connor was on the show on Friday. He thinks this is going to sink Trump's chances in 2024. I'm not so sure. I mean, I I really, really value John's legal opinions. I mean, that goes without saying. He's, He's had a long and distinguished career as a prosecutor, represented a deep throat was involved in the Patty Hearst kidnapping trial. Uh, but I'm not convinced this is going to sink Trump's chances of regaining the White House. I think, I think voters will be left to decide whether moving some boxes around at Mar-a-Lago and maybe even bragging on tape that he had these documents and maybe he should, he should keep them from the FBI. They're going to be left to decide, is that really a big deal When compared to the corruption of the Biden crime family, because it's now beginning to look more and more like Joe Biden took a five million dollar bribe from someone on the corrupt Ukraine oil and gas company Burisma when he was vice president. So the indictment against Trump. Again, claims he showed classified documents to multiple people without security clearance on two separate occasions back in twenty twenty one. One of those alleged instances was leaked to the media. CNN reported June 2nd, the federal prosecutors had obtained an audio recording of a summer 2021 meeting in which former President Trump acknowledged he had held on to a classified Pentagon document about a, p- a potential attack on Iran. Multiple sources told CNN. CNN.
1: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
2: It remains unknown who the uh, network sources were, but it's it's looking like the leaks came from the Department of Justice. So that's number one: leaks from the DOJ. That could lead to dismissal of the indictment immediately. Secondly, when you have DOJ leaks going through the media, that Trump's lawyers could argue poisons the jury pool. That could also lead to dismissal of the indictment by the judge who happens to be a Trump appointed judge, by the way. So this will be interesting. Obviously I hope Trump beats the indictment and I hope he wins the GOP nomination and goes on to a defeat hapless, corrupt grumpy Beijing, Joe Biden in 2024. I mentioned billboard Chris He'll be here last order of business in hour two to discuss what happened at the big anti-gender ideology protest in Ottawa on Friday. Mia Ashton from the post-millennial will be here in hour two with some good news, more good news. The UK is banning the use of puberty blockers for children. An Asian-American student with a. 1590 SAT score. Wow. Wow. 1590, that was his SAT score. He was rejected by six elite colleges, and he's blaming affirmative action. Kenny Shu, president of Colorist United and the author of An Inconvenient Minority, will be here to discuss also Hour 2. Gerald Salente, the world's foremost trends forecaster and publisher of the Trends Journal, is our feature interview today in Hour 2. This hour, the Anti-Woke Book Club with James Pugh. Uh, Your calls. That's right. We're going to open up the lines around 450 uh, or sorry, 440 p.m. Eastern this hour. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. But first, David Johnston is out as special rapporteur looking into Chinese interference in our elections. What happens next? Tom Korski from Black Locks Reporter. We'll be here with his thoughts. The Richard Sarah Show off and running for Monday, June 12th, in the year of our Lord, 2023. Facta non verba.
7: We're back as the Richard Sarah Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
2: David Johnston, the Prime Minister's special rapporteur, resigned very suddenly on Friday. And uh, now... The uh, conservatives, the new Democrats and the bloc are uh, huddling this week to discuss possible nominees to head a public inquiry into suspected election fraud by foreign agents. Tom Korski, managing editor, Blacklock's reporter, is with us once again. Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. So when he resigned uh, and then you had the uh, I guess it was. Uh, Dominic LeBlanc, intergovernmental affairs minister, saying, OK, we're going to wait now from for guidance from opposition parties. That's to me. I mean, that sounds like a pretty in- good indication that the liberals now are willing to seriously consider a public inquiry.
3: Uh, do I have that right? They don't have. Absolutely. They don't have a choice because the bottom is out of the tub. The whole Johnson was was the, the this this thin reed on which they (laughs) manufactured this entire alternate universe where they could ignore successive votes of the House of Commons. And there was going to be apparently some kind of symposiums. And Johnson was going to... And the whole point was to avoid a public inquiry. And when Johnson resigned, as he had to, then the exactly as you as you put it, Richard, the path became very clear. Minister LeBlanc says, Oh, okay, if the opposition's so smart, let's see what your ideas are. And the opposition said, Well, actually, we do have quite a few ideas. We're going to come up with some names of the judges we like. These are the terms of reference. Very quick timelines chop, chop. Let's go. It it makes you wonder, Richard, like, why didn't the opposition parties do this three months ago? But anyway, here we are now. And there is now they have this fake deadline pressure because the House of Commons wants to adjourn for a summer recess a week from Friday. So how is this going to work now with
2: the you've got the conservatives, the new Democrats and the Bloc, They're all going to huddle and come up with a, a list of nominees uh, is that going to be I, I mean, I can't imagine that's going to be that easy a task. You're going to have, um, you know, lots of ideas, lots of names. They've got to winnow it down to what, maybe a handful and, and turn that over to the liberals. Uh, th- th- that could be quite sure. time consuming.
3: Well, not if they know what they're doing, though. Richard, I mean, all you need is a judge who didn't go to high school with Justin Trudeau, who didn't (laughs) ski with the Trudeau family, who didn't take uh, an appointment from the Trudeau Foundation, whose lawyer is not a Liberal Party campaign donor, who did not go to uh, University of Toronto with the Supreme Court Justice retiree who okayed him on conflicts. If if you all you have to do is match all that criteria, I would imagine there would be there's thirty six thousand lawyers in Canada. Several of them have been appointed judges. Just off the top of my head, I can think of twenty judges who meet that criteria. In other words, just look at the facts and start asking hard questions. I think they can do it in short order.
2: What what other demands can the opposition uh, make to the liberals? Uh, Can they can they give it some time frame? Can they say, well, well, here's here's our list of nominees and we want um, we want the uh, the person heading the public inquiry, you know, to come back with a report within six months or, uh, you know, can they make those sorts of demands?
3: Absolutely, they can, uh, and and they did so in the motions that passed by majority vote in the House of Commons, supported by all parties except members of the government caucus. Now, cabinet says, cabinet puts up my my two cents only, Richard. Cabinet puts up a straw man argument, says, wait, wait, wait hold on. These are top-secret records. There's no way you can have a public inquiry with top-secret records. Well, we did it in 1945 with the Guzenko soviet spy ring that sent several spies, Russian spies, to the penitentiary. I'm pretty sure we have 90 years in experience in dealing with secret records and public inquiries. This has been, uh, an, uh, in my opinion, a straw man argument put forward by cabinet. What's the main point, though? Opposition leader Polly says the clock is ticking. Cabinet has wasted months. And so you can't have another general election with this hanging around, which means with every day that passes – you get into a tighter by they have painted themselves into a corner because cabinet thought they could argue their way out of this and it didn't work out. It all ended on Friday.
2: All right. We're finally, finally getting our public inquiry. Well, this should be good. All right. When we come back, let's talk about this uh, internal poll. I guess this is another Privy Council poll uh, regarding the um, uh, climate program and the uh, Canadians think. Trudeau's climate program is Incompetent, unfair And lacking in transparency In other words, a big fail We'll uh, get to that in a moment Tom Korski, Managing Editor, Blacklock's reporter Stays with us, more of the Richard Serrett Show In two minutes
7: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM It's the Richard Serrett Show
2: All right, welcome back I love these Privy Council In-house research polls uh, and this one having to do with the federal government's climate plan really not a good look for the liberal government tom Korsky stays with his managing editor blacklock's reporter tom what is this um uh, poll really all about why why did they launch or why did they conduct this poll and what did they find out what, did, what how do canadians feel about uh, uh, climate
3: it's not pretty i i'm with you by the way these these are the only polls we read because these are the only polls that cabinet rates. That's important. This is in-house research by the Privy Council Office, the top of the federal bureaucracy. And they asked people, really, hey, how are we doing on climate change? Not so good. They find a majority of respondents. This is a plurality. Of, this is a consensus of opinion of, of people they surveyed who said, we think that you. they don't name Environment Minister Stephen Giebel by name, but they talk about his program, they the majority of Canadians say, we think it's unfair. We think your program is unfair. And that is primarily based on the carbon tax. We think it's incompetent. We don't think you know what you're doing. And they go on to say that the, they don't understand whole aspects of the program and suggest it lacks transparency. Well, Richard, that's all rational. That's absolutely completely rational. Remember... The $50 a ton cap, that's 12 cents a liter on gasoline. That was the carbon tax prior to the 2019 election. Cabinet swore up and down. No way are they going to increase that. That would be wrong. And they turned around. and increased it 240% after they were elected. That is going from 12 cents a liter today. To 38 cents a liter by 2030 under their targets every year, every April 1st, every April Fool's Day, you will pay more and more and more. And there are people, as their pollsters tell them, who, as they stand there gassing up the car, say, how am I helping flooding in Bangladesh again? I don't get it. (laughs) Big problem, Richard.
1: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
2: Right. It says uh, in your story, Tom, only a small minority somewhat agreed that the federal government demonstrated competence, fairness, openness, and care when it comes to climate change. A small minority. Um, now, this is kind of part of a, a, um, a series of polls having to do with or gauging The trust factor. And this is another example. Uh, A lot of these polls coming out, very, very few Canadians trust the government with anything, not alone climate
3: change, let alone climate change, anything. Well, and on climate change, they've had eight years to sell a program. They signed this deal in Paris, France in 2015. They've had eight years to explain it. And that that goes through two general elections. And they find a majority of people, even people, these are not partisan responses. This is not Internet conspiracy material. These are ordinary mothers and fathers saying, I don't get it. I can see my standard of living going down and costs going up. I can see what natural gas home heating cost me last winter. I don't get it. I'm not getting it. And then when you start to get that cynicism creep in, I don't trust you. I think you're selling me a bill of goods that's trouble.
2: So as you say these are the only polls that the cabinet reads these private uh, privy council research polls. Uh is this likely to cause the liberal government to rethink let's say their their clean fuel uh, tax or the uh, the other carbon tax are they are they going to back down do you think as a result of this polling?
3: No, sad news here. You know what the response always is? We need better messaging. We need a new slogan. Sometimes I say we need a new minister. It's not looking good for Steve Gibo as, as Environment Minister. They, they've gone through now; he's their second Environment Minister, and uh, they may be looking at a third one because Steve's not getting it done. But their answer is typically, in our experience, has been, "Well, we need we need a better slogan." It's about it's about messaging. It's all about the slogan, Richard.
2: That'll fix it. All right. Tom, <laughs> Tom Korski, Managing Editor, <laughs> Blacklocks Reporter. Thank you, Tom. Support. Thank in, you, Richard. Thank you, Tom. Support independent media, blacklocks.ca. Blacklocks.ca. All right, we are going to open up the phone lines. 289 275 9600. 289 275 9600. 289 275 9600. And uh, all of this just ahead of James Pugh, who will join us from wokewatchcanada.com and the anti-woke book club. And uh, also coming up in the second hour, Gerald Salente, the top trends forecaster in the world. He's got a fantastic track record. He'll be here. We'll talk about the, the, the upcoming edition of the trends journal. Also, Coming up in the second hour, Kenny Shu from Colorist United and the author of An Inconvenient Minority will talk about this uh, Asian-American student who scored a 1590 on his SAT, a 1590 on his SATs, and he was rejected by six elite colleges. Of course, looks like affirmative action is to blame there and uh, also coming up in the second hour Mia Ashton from the Post Millennial will be here we'll talk about the uh, United Kingdom and the National Health Service banning puberty blockers for gender transitions for minor children and of course billboard chris with a look back on Friday's very successful uh, protest against gender gen- gender ideology in public schools in Canada all right but your calls next 289 289- 275 9600, 289 275 9600. Back with more of the Richard Serret Show right after these. You're
7: listening to the Richard Serret Show on New Stock Saga, 960 AM.
2: All right, welcome back. The phone lines are open at 289 275 9600. 289 275 9600. Just looking at the lineup here, this is actually your one and only opportunity. Uh, today to call in so if you have something to get off your chest do it now 289 275 let me ask you this if the uh, Toronto by-election were held today the mayoral election who has your vote I see Olivia Chow still way out ahead the last poll I saw had her in the high 30s not looking good I've officially announced or endorsed Anthony Fury for mayor on this show Yeah, that'll get it done. Anyway, um, now I see former Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders is uh, positioning himself as the only alternative to stop former NDP MP Olivia Chow from becoming mayor. I don't know about that. Um, I mean, he would make a better mayor than Olivia Chow. There's no question about that. But to me, Anthony Fury is the is the uh, the only choice for me how would you vote if you had to vote today what are there 70 candidates let's uh begin with dan is calling in from waterloo dan welcome to the richard sarah show how are you
6: i'm doing terrific thanks richard how are you
2: very
1: well
6: Good. Just wanted to call, uh, not about the Toronto vote, because I I live in Waterloo, but I do enjoy listening to the guests that you have on, but somewhat random. I just happened to be uh, flipping around the TV stations last week and happened to note that a Dr. Phil episode was focused on the topic of free speech and social media in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I made a point of actually recording the program so that I could watch it. And I watched it last week with my wife, and it was... It was rather encouraging from the point of view that they were highlighting a lot of the items and aspects that you and your guests focus on your show. And what I appreciated about it is one particular aspect, even Dr. Phil acknowledged when they addressed some of the COVID issues, how if government is going to come out with an official narrative and say if anyone's going to speak against this, especially anyone that's a doctor or medical professional, he basically acknowledged that that's a real problem. And I was just really happy to see the fact that that's on mainstream TV during the day. We need some of those retired people and soccer moms and dads and others hanging around at home that maybe catch that, that might not hear it otherwise. So I just wanted to share that.
2: Well, that is somewhat encouraging, I suppose. I think yeah, Dr. Phil has a a huge audience. Uh, It's it's on uh, the TV here during the day, usually, Dr. Phil, my mother-in-law watches. Uh, So was this a position that Dr. Phil concurred with, or these were the positions of the, usually he'll have like a debate, doesn't he? Um, Yeah, it
6: was... uh The episode itself is actually focused around uh, free speech and social media and how so much of the cancel culture has come in. So an element of the program did then delve into this aspect that some guests brought up, but he wholeheartedly concurred with that assessment. And it was the words of his note that actually acknowledged the fact that if Ah. government is going to, Trying to put stipulations on doctors like me, and I'm somewhat paraphrasing for him. But this is this is what he said. The core of what he said: if they're going to try and tell us what we're allowed to say, that's
2: a problem. Right. Well, that is somewhat encouraging, I would say. He has a big platform, okay. and I think we yeah, s- yeah,
6: better yeah. better than the uh, you know usual stuff that we'll see on mainstream TV. So it was a, a, l- a little bit of a light flickering in the distance. So I'll take it.
2: I'll take it as well. Thank you, Dan. Um, let's see. Oh, well, I guess it's, that's it. That's it for Dan. Uh, 289 275 289 275 I'm trying to think of the other TV doctor, uh, who has been quite outspoken about COVID censorship. Uh, oh, Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew, who had at one time, I believe a, uh, a show on CNN or, CNN headlines—is that even still around? I don't think so. But Dr. Drew, um, I think by this time he had been booted from CNN and is just uh, podcasting, or maybe he's doing something on, on on Rumble. But Dr. Drew has also been Dr. Drew Pinsky uh, has also been pretty outspoken against COVID censorship. It's starting. It's starting, you're starting to see more and more uh, people back, backing away from even previously held positions that they held, that they had regarding COVID, regarding the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Not nearly enough, though, in my opinion. Two eight nine two seven five ninety six hundred. although that's about it for <laughs> a time. So just write that number down and stick it on your refrigerator door for the next time. Uh, When we come back, the Anti Woke Book Club, James Pugh, will take a look at The uh, Origins of Socialism by George Lichtheim, published way back in 1969. That's next. The Richard Serrett Show, right here on Saga 960 AM. Back with more after these.
7: Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
2: All right. Welcome back. And it is time for the Anti-Woke Book Club. And joining us, as he does every Monday at this time, James Pugh, entrepreneur and independent writer for WokeWatchCanada.com. James, welcome back. How are you?
8: I'm doing good, Richard. How are you doing?
2: Terrific. Thank you. All right. Today, we're going to look at The Origins of Socialism by George Lickheim, published way back in 1969. Now, this is an interesting choice, James, because typically, well, you'll have a a book that's authored by someone who is critical of the left, let's say. Um, But George Lichtheim, uh, from what I understand, uh, is or was an avowed socialist.
8: That's right. Um, The way way I see it is um, a wokeism is a sort of updated, adapted or mutated version of socialism, so we wanted to really discover the the origin origins of it, where it came from. So why not learn it from the horse's mouth, you know?
2: Right. So the origins of socialism. Th- this actually um, surprised me. He um, he traces the origins of socialism uh, even prior to Karl Marx. He takes it all the way back to the French Revolution and something called the, the French utopianist movement. Tell me about the French utopians.
8: Yes. Uh, okay, well, u- utopianism as a kind of a fictional genre had existed for quite a quite a long time. Thomas More had uh, published a book in the 1600s called Utopia, but this was a social satire. This was not taking the concept of utopia seriously. He wasn't trying to create a utopia, but... Fast forward to the French Revolution, these uh, utopian intellectuals who were heavily influenced by the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, they did take the idea of building the utopia seriously. So this is where, when people talk about the communist uh, utopia, this is where that comes from. Uh, Socialism has its roots in utopianism, but seriously taking the concept of utopia and its pursuit seriously.
2: So uh, I, I knew I knew that socialism must be a satire because it can't be taken seriously. So this is so does Karl Marx also draw? Did he also draw inspiration from Thomas More's uh, utopia?
8: Well, he would have drawn his influence more from the French socialist utopians from the French revolutionary period. So this would be St. Simon, Charles Fourier, Etienne Cabet. And then there was an English one too, Robert Owen Um, But the term socialism wasn't actually coined until 1830, Um, and it kind of represents a a shift away from the early utopian ideas and more to uh, um, a type of of, um, social struggle that would be about organizing the industrial working class. So Marx and all of the, like Marx and Engels were very much influenced by St. Simon, especially
2: Okay, so let's talk about some of the uh, the ideas of Saint Simon and, and Fourier. These are the, the two French intellectuals that that uh, were inspired by Thomas More's Utopia. What were some of their ideas?
8: Well, Saint Simon uh, Saint Simonism was probably a little bit more influential and maybe a little more grounded in in reality. Charles Fourier is shocking to me because he he's so influential to like radical feminism to so many of the um other versions of cultural marxism and it's crazy he had ideas like i mentioned in the essay about putting kids to work because they kids enjoy getting dirty and adults don't like doing dirty jobs so here's the solution we'll put all the kids to work
2: (laughs) well isn't that interesting we often attribute that to sort of the rapacious capitalism in the early days of the industrial revolution uh, and that 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 is often cited as one of the excesses of early capitalism. And yet this idea actually came from the the early iteration of socialism. Yeah,
8: in this case, uh, kind of a utopianism, it's trying to um, work out all the conflicts of society and you know kids like to get dirty so that that solves that problem adults don't like to so we're we're trying to make everyone happy and create a perfect situation <laughs> it's very naive uh, as are the the ideas of jean jacques rousseau because not only were they influenced by like utopian fiction but they were influenced by jean jacques rousseau so heavily the, the all these ideas that we could the, the world could be governed in an egalitarian kind of way and being held together simply by like a, the, the, the goodwill of people, like a social goodwill. Um, that's uh, very naive. And that's kind of the origins of all these things and how it solidified a little bit later uh, with Marx and Engels and became uh, more of an analysis of the industrial working
2: class. All right. So, again, that is The Origins of Socialism by George Lieckheim, published in 1969. Um, what else do we need to know about uh, Lieckheim or uh, or the book in closing?
8: Um, man, I'm not sure. Well, I didn't really get into it in, in uh, our, our talk here or in the essay. But the last half of the book, he talks about the fusion of uh, British, French and German uh, socialism, and how that is really where the Marxian analysis comes together. It's the fusing of those three different schools.
2: All right. Well, there you go. The uh, the origins of socialism going all the way back. I suppose you could take it back to Thomas More's satire Utopia, then adopted by these um, so called French intellectuals. Uh, now we're not talking about the original French Revolution. This would have been what the uh, yeah the second or the third revolution in France because they had a bunch of them.
8: Yeah, no, all three. The set, the 1793, this begins, and then an, another one in 1830 and another one in 1848. It's all part of the same period.
2: The French utopianists. All right. Fascinating. James Pugh, independent writer for Woke Watch Canada. And uh, you can read the essay and you've got a list of uh, a lot of the uh, the titles, a lot of the books that we've discussed here on the Anti-Woke Book Club up at WokeWatchCanada.com. Woke Watch Canada. Canada.com. James, thank you so much. No problem. All right. Hour two coming up. As I mentioned, Gerald Salente, the top trends forecaster in the world will be here. Also publisher of the trends research or the uh, trends journal. We've got a, uh, a new um, edition of the trends journal coming out in just a couple of days tomorrow, actually. So we'll uh, give you a preview of that. Kenny Shu, president of colorist United. And also, The uh, author of An Inconvenient Minority will talk about this Asian-American student with a 1590 SAT score rejected by six elite colleges. And uh, Mia Ashton will be here from the post-millennial. We'll talk about the, uh, the National Health Service in the UK banning puberty blockers for gender transitions for minors. I hope Canada, the Canadian government is taking note of this. The world is moving away from this lunacy. It's time for us to do the same here in Canada. And then finally, we'll uh, speak with Billboard Chris. Chris Elson will be here. We'll take a look back on uh, Friday's very successful uh, protest up in Ottawa against gender ideology in our public schools. All right, that's all upcoming in hour two of The Richard Serrett Show. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show.
4: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it,
7: stick your head out and yell. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take
5: this anymore!
2: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for itself after centuries of fighting. Hey, welcome to hour two of the Richard Serrett Show. And as I always say, if you missed hour one, you missed a lot, but uh, don't beat yourself up. Still, lots of great programming coming this hour, including Billboard Chris. He'll be here last order of business, and we'll uh, look back on Friday's big protest against. Uh, gender ideology in our public schools. Billboard Chris was up there as were uh, parents of all religions. Uh, this was encouraging to see parents from the three great religions, Muslims, Jewish, Christian parents standing in opposition in peaceful opposition to the indoctrination hope happening in the public schools, the sexualization of children, the, the grooming of children. And uh, just as Chris described on the Thursday when he was here in anticipation of that protest, um, all those that went up to uh, support him were incredibly peaceful, and it was the left, of course, uh, that were engaging in um, some violence. It wasn't; uh, it didn't get uh, too out of hand, but there was one instance uh, where a, a member of Antifa.
1: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing?
2: shoved a a Muslim mother to the ground. Not a good look for the left. So we'll get uh, Chris Elston, a.k.a. Billboard Chris, uh, on the program, Last Order of Business, with his thoughts. Mia Ashton will be here from the post-millennial. And I will talk about the uh, United Kingdom and their National Health Service banning puberty blockers for gender transition for minors. This is another big W, a big win. And uh, let's hope that they're paying attention up here in Canada and that we do the same. All right. Oh, one more uh, Asian American. This Asian American student scored fifteen hundred and ninety on his SATs and yet and yet was rejected by six elite colleges. And uh, Kenny Hsu, president of Color Us United and author of An Inconvenient Minority. We'll be here to uh, discuss. All right. It's a great uh, a great honor to have back with us the world's top trends forecaster. He's got a fantastic track record, and um, he is the founder of the Trends Research Institute and publisher of the Trends Journal. In fact, uh, I believe we have a brand-new edition coming out tomorrow. And here with a preview, Gerald Salente. Hey, Gerald, welcome. How are you? I'm fine.
4: Thank you so much. It's a very kind introduction. I appreciate it. And I really want to thank you for what you're doing because there are so few people out there that are speaking up for the truth. And rather than repeating the lines that the government feeds them. And who would have ever believed that this would have happened in our lifetime? Where any time that you say something that disputes the government narrative, it's called misinformation. And as you were talking about that whole gender thing. I guess we can't say that word misinformation anymore. We would mm-hmm. call sexist. So we have to call it gender information. We call it, can't call it misinformation.
2: I get the sense though that, uh, it, you know, the, the tide is, maybe I'm being a bit of a Pollyanna and overly optimistic, but I get the sense that people are really starting to wake up. Uh, they're starting to push back in a peaceful way. Um, uh, even up here in docile, sleepy, Canada you've got parents finally showing up to school board meetings speaking back uh, speaking up pushing back um this big protest in ottawa um what do you I mean we're seeing this rise um of these populist movements around the world Spain just had regional elections over the weekend and there's a, a new party there called Vox uh which means the voice I guess and uh now you know we've got a a populist Party in Poland, in Hungary, in Italy recently elected. We're starting to. What do you see? What's behind this rise in these populist uh, parties around the world, these third party um, parties, if you will?
4: It's exactly what you said that people are fed up with the political uh, oligarchs that are running and ruining our lives. And as far as Canada being, you know, I, I think they're very aggressive up there. What they did with the truckers' strike. Nobody did anywhere in, in Europe or, or the United States. And I was very involved in that in a lot of different levels, speaking at them as well, not being there, but being able to. And I was very proud of them for uh, standing up the way they did. But that little true dope up there, what they did in passing that emergency act and everything else to stop it is, is, is uh, very uh, Hitler would have loved it. You know, it was uh, or, or Stalin, you know, was right up at that league but the people are is exactly what you said we had forecast by the way a populist movement going on Anti-vax, anti-tax, anti vax anti tax anti immigration and anti the bigs taking over everything and the people coming becoming nothing more than plantation workers of slave landia and i don't have to you don't have to believe me you can listen to oxfam and their report came out that between uh, 2020 and 2022 The billionaires only got twenty seven trillion dollars richer. The equity markets in the United States, one percent, one percent owns fifty four percent, ten percent owns 90 percent. So the people own virtually nothing. So the people have had it because they're they're working like crazy. The government's stealing their money in the name of taxes and they want a new way. And, And this is the time
2: for it. But the these populist movements, they tend to really uh, take off in in Europe. Uh, For example, a party could launch, um, you know, a couple of years ago and before long, uh, they may not form the government, but they have sufficient members in parliament that they, you know, because they all it's all about coalition governments in Europe. They basically yep. hold the balance of power. Why does it happen so quickly in places like Europe? And it takes forever. Um, I mean, we still have the, you know, basically the 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 war party in the United States. You've got the their neocons of either their GOP or Dems. It doesn't matter up here. We've got the liberals and the conservatives. That's it. They're both the same. Why does it take so long for these? populist movements to take root in North America.
4: Read the headlines of today's, uh, I think it's in CNN or Yahoo about DeSantis having a meeting with uh, Wall Street financiers. You got to be a billionaire or, or multimillionaire to run for office in any le- level in, in what they call America. Look at the uh, midterm elections. You had a little clown like this. Uh, uh, there's that guy down in Texas. Um, oh. O'Rourke,
2: Peter O'Rourke, yeah, Peter
4: O'Rourke, a little clown, a little clown of nothing, another clown, arrogant clown over there in Georgia. Abrams, both of them, both of them lost and spent a hundred million dollars to lose, a hundred million dollars to lose the race for a governor. It's all controlled by the bigs. That's why. And you mentioned the parliamentary, you know, uh, the the prime ministers and the parliamentary parties they have in Europe. You have a better shot at it. But here it's as George Carlin, the great George Carlin said, it's one big club and you ain't in it. That's right.
2: What are your thoughts on RFK Jr. Uh, running and really uh, getting some traction? I think in, in some polls he's up around 20, 25 percent of Democrats. I mean, this is really mirroring. His his father's campaign back in 68 when he was running against an incumbent president until Johnson dropped out. But um, what are your thoughts on RFK Jr.? And how is he going to get I mean, what, what, he, they're, they're not allowing him to debate Joe Biden. Um, what's going to happen with that, do you think?
4: My forecast that I made about a month ago is Kennedy 2024 is going to win. And if you go back and listen to a number of the YouTubes that I've done and interviews, Going back as far as December, I said the perfect ticket for the United States would be RFK Jr. for president and Judge Andrew Napolitano for vice president, and you'd be getting the left and the right. Again, I go by the data, and the, and you look at the polls. Uh, the young people do not want Biden in there; they've had it. And Kennedy is is hitting a lot of the progressive movement issues, being that he go, him going down to the border. Uh, Recently in in Mexico, he's against the war. He's against the bigs. And of course, you know, every the media keeps degrading him every time they begin a paragraph and writing about it. They start off with (laughs) anti-vax, the first words. But there are a lot of anti-vax people. And so but that's not the issue. By 2024, that's not going to be an issue. I believe that minus a wildcard event. That. RFK Jr. will be the next
2: president of the United States. You heard it here. Gerald Salente, publisher of the Trends Journal, TrendsJournal.com. How do
4: we subscribe, Gerald? Just TrendsJournal.com, TrendsJournal.com, and it's only $2.86 a week. Last week was, what, 177 pages, and you can listen to it audio as well. And it's the only magazine, I mean, you know, I'm not bragging about it, but it's the only magazine in the world that gives you in-depth socioeconomic and geopolitical trends analysis and trend forecasts, all the news is doing is they're saying this is what's going on, but they don't say what it means and what's next. Matter of fact, what uh, Los Angeles Times just announced they're laying off 10 percent of its employees. Business Insider laying off 10 percent of its employees. Vice going bankrupt. Nobody's giving them trends. And the reason is they don't know how to do it.
2: Yeah. 180 pages uh every week and no ads, no ads, no ads. All right. We'll take a quick time out back with more with trends forecaster, Gerald Salente right here on the Richard Sarrett show. Don't go away.
7: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News
2: Talk, Saga 960 AM. The world's leading trans forecaster, Gerald Salente, publisher of the Trends Journal, TrendsJournal.com, TrendsJournal.com. Gerald, I believe the the, the next edition comes out tomorrow? Yes. Can you give us a preview? What's what's the cover story?
4: Well, the cover story actually is uh, (laughs) Zelensky... Uh, who plays the piano with his penis listen to everything that he says this is a guy you can't make this up it's almost like let's make up a story we're going to sell the covid war we're going to frighten people to death and the first thing they're going to do again this your science fiction couldn't make this up is they're going to run to the supermarket and buy toilet paper that's what happened now you got a guy That's the president of Ukraine that before he became president of Ukraine, he played a sitcom and in the sitcom, he played the president of Ukraine. And again, I'm not making this up. You could see the videos. He played the piano with his penis. And every time that Zelensky says anything, we, the plantation workers of Slavelandia, are expected to believe everything that he says. There is no other side. And that's what's become of the mainstream media. So that's part of what we're talking about. On the on the economic front, it's very simple. Up there in Canada, for example, last week they raised interest rates, another twenty-five basis points. You're looking now at the office vacancy rate in in Montreal is expected to hit twenty-five percent. Throughout Canada, around twenty to twenty-five percent. The higher interest rates go, the more they have to pay on these loans, commercial real estate, where you have less tenants now. So there's going to be a banking crisis going back to to what they did. They raised interest rates. They're making a bad situation worse again, whether you do it or don't. Now, on Wednesday, the United States, are they going to raise interest rates or are they going to keep them where they are? Then on Thursday, are they going to raise interest rates in Europe? Or keep them where they are. So let's go to Europe. It's in a recession. They've had two negative quarters of GDP. And it's not stagflation. No, it's going down and you have inflation. It's dragflation. Economy's dragging down, inflation going up. So the big question is, what is Europe or America going to do with interest rates? So here's the story. 70% of the street bets that they're going to keep interest rates where they are in the States. If they keep interest rates where they are in the States, that is going to boost the equity markets as we see it, but only temporarily. And gold prices will go down only temporarily. If they keep interest rates, again, if they keep them where they are, excuse me, gold prices will go up and the the markets will go up. We said back in November that the S&P 500 was going to go up. The reason being, we look at data following the last 40 midterm elections over the past 60 years in America, the S&P 500 has gone up 16.3 percent. This year it's up already 12 percent. It all has to do with interest rates. So when they start lowering interest rates, which I will bet my life on, They will do in 2024 because they do it before every presidential election. Mm -hmm. You're going to see the beginning of the crash of the dollar. The dollar is only strong because interest rates are high and we're forecasting gold prices are going to skyrocket. And then when you look at the BRICS and all the nations joining them, they've had enough of the U.S. dollar and this is what's going to bring it
2: down when they lower interest rates. So, um, You're looking at a uh, you mentioned commercial real estate and and, uh, office vacancy. We're going to see a a collapse of the commercial of commercial real estate
4: like you've never seen before. There was never a time when people didn't go back to work and they're working from home. And and again, the data you have in San Francisco, a 30 percent office vacancy rate. Hmm. Vacancy rate means that 30% of the offices are vacant. You go to Los Angeles, 30%. The top 10 cities like New York City, 20% vacancy rate. Montreal, you got about a 25% vacancy rate. So now all the businesses that depended on commuters, all the delicatessens, all the restaurants, all the dry cleaners, all the, all the hair, they're going down. But the big one is in the United States, we have a 20 trillion dollar debt level for commercial real estate of which offices are a big one. And you're already seeing the foreclosures. Look what just happened last week over in San Francisco when major hotels closed down. They closed down. People aren't going there. And keep the keep the hotels. We can't pay our, we can't pay it. Oh, and by the way, small and medium sized banks hold most of these loans. You're going to see a banking crisis like we've never seen before.
2: When do, when do we start to use, never mind uh, dragflation uh, and recession, when do we start to use the D word, Gerald?
4: They'll, they'll start using it when the equity markets crash. The, most of the people, again, you look at the data, 64% of the people living paycheck to paycheck The people on the street feel it, but they don't know it until Wall Street crashes and the equity markets crash. The the, the Great Depression was happening before Wall Street crashed in in, uh, 1929. The Panic of 08 was going on before Bear Stearns and the other ones went down. It only hits the people when the equity markets crash. When the equity markets crash, that's when they'll call it a depression.
2: And... When do you think the equity markets will crash?
4: It's a guessing game because you have a crime syndicate in charge. Hey, Richard, I'm too big to fail. Don't you know who I am? I need money. What do you mean you're too big to fail? Hey, I'm Goldman Sachs. I'm I'm J.P. Morgan Chase. You're a nobody. I need $29 trillion was pumped into the central banks, according to bard college the levy institute between 2007 and 2010 they will do anything they're money junkies they're money junkies they'll do anything they can to stay keep on their
2: their uh, their high all right uh once again gerald how do we subscribe to the trends journal Trendsjournal.com,
4: trendsjournal.com. And by the way, there's a 30 day money back guarantee. If you don't like it, you get your money back. But a guarantee, you know, we're doing everything we can to help the people prepare in these dangerous times ahead. And this is really the time to get in the best shape you can, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You're on your own. You better make
2: your future on your own. Less than $3 uh, per week for uh, almost 200 pages, ad-free, great articles. The world's foremost trends forecaster, Gerald Salente, TrendsJournal.com. Gerald, always a pleasure. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for all you do. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Gerald Salente. All right, when we come back, Kenny Shu from Colorist United. will talk about this Asian-American student who scored 1,590 on his SATs. Rejected by six elite colleges could be affirmative action. We'll talk about that next. Stay with us.
7: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
2: 18-year-old John Wang. He's a, a Florida native. He scored a 1590 on his SATs. The highest score is 1,600. That's as good as it gets. 1,590 out of 1,600. And he had a perfect score in the math section. Perfect. You combine that with a um, a 4.65 high school GPA, he should be a a shoe-in for any elite university. In fact, he applied to um, a number of top-tier schools, including MIT, Caltech, Princeton, Harvard, Carnegie Mellon, and UC Berkeley. He was rejected by all of them. All of them. Go figure. Uh Affirmative action, I suspect. Kenny Hsu is the president of Color Us United. And uh, serves as their primary spokesman. He's also challenged Harvard University for discrimination against Asian Americans. And he is the author of An Inconvenient Minority. Kenny, welcome back. How are you? For having me. My pleasure. Wow, this is just kind of (laughs) the textbook example uh, of affirmative action, isn't it? Um, Your your thoughts on young young John Wang and his uh, near-perfect SAT score and still getting turned down by six elite universities.
9: All I know is that if he and his scores in GPA were also black, he would have a 98% plus chance of getting in and probably a high chance of getting a scholarship or merit award as well. Um, The fact that he is Asian means that if you score at the highest academic decile of Harvard admissions – you would only have a 25% chance of getting into Harvard. But if you were white, you would have a 35% chance. If you were Hispanic, you would have a 75% chance. And if you were black, you would have a 95% chance. So yes,
2: he is a victim of Harvard's discrimination policies. So the Supreme court is going to hear a case that could end the 40 years of race-based affirmative action in university admissions. And as I mentioned,
1: is running out. This message is paid for by Lines for Fair and Equitable Policy.
2: Uh, you were also involved in a legal case against Harvard for this very issue. What What are your um, your thoughts? Do you think the Supreme Court is going to end affirmative action?
9: Yeah, and I wrote a book about it called An Inconvenient Minority, which you can buy on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. My thought is that I think the Supreme Court is finally poised to strike down affirmative action. Why? Because we have made the case. um, I have made the case in my book and through my advocacy that there are harms, that there are real harms of diversity, equity and inclusion, particularly Harvard's diversity policies. Discriminate against well-qualified Asian-Americans to make room. For Black and Hispanic applicants with lower standards, that's the problem with affirmative action, and that is illegal. That is unconstitutional. That goes against the principle of a colorblind society that we should be reinforcing in our top
2: institutions. So, um, Harvard is a private institution. Um, there are other universities. Is the University of North Carolina I think is public. So you've got a couple of distinct legal issues at here. So, did, how how will this will be addressed did one, will the Supreme Court rule once for private institutions and and one for public or how will that work?
9: They may, they probably won't. They probably will go with one ruling. The reason why is because Harvard, although it's a quote-unquote private institution, accepts over 500 million dollars in government funding anyways, mostly to fund its, you know, what it's called, its research, etc. Really it's it's an arbitrary number because they can just redirect that fund to wherever they want, or they can redirect their private funding towards something else so that they could put the government money into their research, so to speak. So the public-private distinction is not much of a factor, in my opinion.
2: Um, how, how soon are we expecting a ruling from the Supreme Court on this? Probably in a week or two. Wow. Uh, and if they if they strike down affirmative action – I guess you're gonna you're gonna pop the champagne and uh, uh, how 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 dramatically will things change uh, in America if affirmative action is is struck down? Do you think?
9: I think that there's still going to have to be a lot of work done, but I think it's going to make a big deal. I think it's going to be a big deal if these if the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action. Let's be honest here; it's taken us like what like 40 years to fight for this. So, yeah, you know, I want it to be treated like the end of Roe v. Wade, basically, <laughs> at least in terms of significance, whatever your um, stance on abortion is. Roe v. Wade, what it did was it returned back to the states the power to make abortion laws. What Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard can do is it can turn back to the people of the United States to evaluate people according to a colorblind treatment. And that's what that's what it should always be about, merit-based treatment in our universities that accept public funding, a.k.a. it actually creates, it actually will allow the precedent of the Civil Rights Act, which banned discrimination on the basis of race, to actually enact itself in our culture. So I think that that's going to be a powerful decision.
2: Indeed, it will be, uh, and we'll watch with interest Um if that happens over the next week or so. Kenny Shu is the author of An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. He's also president and primary spokesman for Color Us United, colorusunited.org, colorusunited.org. Kenny, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, when we come back, Mia Ashton from the Postmillennial, the UK... Uh, the National Health Service there has banned puberty blockers for gender transitions for minors. Great news. A big W up on the board. Mia Ashton is next. Stay with us.
7: Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
2: Welcome back. Uh, this is a big W. Now, it's not here in Canada, but it is... uh, Nevertheless, a big W in the uh, battle against radical gender ideology, child affirming care. The United Kingdom's National Health Service on Friday announced they are banning the use of puberty blockers for gender transition for minor children. And here with more, Mia Ashton is... With the post millennial, and also is the lead for Cosbar's child safeguarding campaign. Mia, welcome back. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
2: Very well. Uh, just give me your initial thoughts on uh, the UK banning the use of puberty blockers uh, in uh, for, for 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 minors.
0: Well, for anyone following the developments in, in England, it's only in England, England and Wales. Uh, this is this does not come as a surprise. The the National Health Service has been undertaking an independent review of its gender, youth gender services, and we all saw this coming, so they have not technically banned them completely because they will still allow a tiny minority of children to um, have the be given the drugs in the strictest of clinical trial settings, and it will only be in the most exceptional of cases. This is the way it's supposed to be done. They looked at the evidence, all of the evidence for puberty blockers. They found it to be of terrible, of of terrible, of very poor quality. And then they and then they have restricted the access to them.
2: Right. And um, this follows, I guess, last summer, I think it was last July, the uh, they announced the NHS, that is announced that they were closing the Tavistock um, gender clinic, although I think it was somewhat delayed. I think it's not going to close now until March of twenty twenty four. So um this, I guess, is kind of the next shoot a drop, and that is uh, banning uh, puberty blockers, except, as you say, in rare instances. Now, we contrast that with the, the process here um, in, the, in the United States. Um, there are instances where where um, doctors are basically like approving kids for puberty blockers after like a 20 minute meeting.
0: That's, uh, you see, I hear from parents all the time, Canadian parents, and that's actually quite normal. Puberty blockers on the first appointment in Canada seems to be the norm. There are, we've got 10 main gender clinics, uh, five of them do not require any psychological assessment or counselling prior to starting the child on blockers. And puberty blockers on the first appointment is is normal because here in Canada, we are ignoring all of the developments elsewhere in the world. We're not performing systematic review, a systematic review of the evidence, as has been done in European countries. We're ignoring all of that. And we're pretending that the science is settled when there is really, truly no evidence for these drugs at all. And there never has been.
2: You and I have talked before about the underlying mental health issues uh, that that are prevalent with, um, you know, this rapid onset, Onset gender dysphoria. One of them is autism. I think it's something like 60% of uh, young girls uh, that are seeking to be tra- transitioned are suffering from uh, autism. Uh, this is kind of telling that the NHS, in its decision, acknowledges the increased prevalence of mental health needs and also identifying uh, as co- the co- comorbidities of gender dysphor- dysphoria. Uh, that's exactly what you've been talking about in this program uh, for for months and months and months. Uh, that's certainly encouraging. They're recognizing the comorbidities associated with gender dysphoria.
0: Well, that's right. So they they're closing down the the Tavistock Clinic, which was the central, the one gender clinic, and then they're opening four regional centers that will be multidisciplinary which means they will be focusing not on gender. They won't be gender clinics. They will be clinics that will definitely deal with the gender related issues, but they will also deal with all the other issues, the mental health issues, the autism, anything else that's going on with the young person, because when you have a a gender clinic, All of that gets ignored. It's called diagnostic overshadowing. As soon as the child goes in for gender treatment, they ignore all of the other issues going on. And so the the NHS are planning to revamp the whole service and focus on the whole child, not just this one aspect of their identity.
2: How much longer can we continue to, to ignore what the, West, the rest of the world is doing, particularly in the UK vis-a-vis uh, child affirming care? It, it seems like this is all going to come crashing down here sooner than later. What are your thoughts?
0: I, I genuinely can't believe we're still ignoring it. I, I, can't, I do not understand how Canadian gender clinics are tuning all of that out because it's not just England. It's Sweden, Finland, Norway and France, and then a bunch of US states. So I I really don't know how they're managing to continue to ignore it. But you're right, they they have to face up to it sooner or later. I have no idea when that will be.
2: Well, it is a key victory in this battle. Uh, Mia, thank you so much for your time, as always. Thank you, Richard. Mia Ashton writes for the post millennial and is the lead on Cosbar's child safeguarding campaign. All right, when we come back, Billboard Chris will be here. We'll uh, take a look back at the uh, big protest against radical gender ideology in our schools that took place up in Ottawa on Friday. Stay tuned for that.
7: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on
2: News Talk, Saga 9:60 a.m. All right, we're celebrating some victories today. The um, decision by the NHS in the UK on Friday to ban puberty blockers, except in very rare instances, clinical trials for uh, minors. And uh, we also, I think, have to celebrate what happened up in Ottawa on Friday, where hundreds and hundreds of parents of all ethnicities, all religions coming together to stand up against this radical gender ideology, sexualization, grooming and so forth of children in public schools and uh billboard chris chris elston joins us once again hey chris how are you richard thank you so much for having me i'm doing fantastic what a
5: great week that was what a great friday that was that was a historic day for
2: fighting gender ideology in canada Just give us a a, kind of paint a picture uh, of what you you saw up there on Friday vis-a-vis the um, the parents that came out um, in support or in protest against.
5: Sure, I think there were probably about a thousand people there in total. That includes the counter protesters. And I'd say they outnumbered us a little bit, but not by much, which is drastically different than any time before, because it's usually 100 against one because everyone's afraid to come out. Because they're afraid of cancel culture and all that. But many people from the Muslim community came out. There were tons of moms and dads there. People flew in from British Columbia, Nova Scotia, came in from Quebec, all over Ontario. So Canadians are awake now. And I think that set the foundation for future protests, which we're going to have. And once people learn about this issue, they never unlearn it. So it's nothing but up from here. It was a great day.
2: Yeah, it it does feel finally like the tide is turning, doesn't it? Would, do you think that this was the this was the the pivot point? To what happened on Friday with all of these parents showing up?
5: Well, I think this is like a snowball rolling downhill. It just gradually gets bigger, and then eventually it turns into an avalanche. And we're kind of at that stage now, finally, where a lot of the groundwork has been being laid for years. There have been a lot of people fighting this, but not much action out on the streets. And honestly, if you really want to get traction for any movement, It needs to be out there in the real world. It just can't be on social media. So Canadians historically have never really had to fight anything. I know we had the Great Trucker Protest. But going all the way back to the founding of Canada, uh, there's a big difference between us and the U.S. They kind of rebelled against the king. And in 1776, that country was formed out of rebellion. But we've never had to rebel against anything in Canada. And finally, we have all these crazy ideologies that we do have to rebel against. We have to put a stop to them. And so it's just a bit of a different culture. It took us a little longer, but we're getting going now
2: and we're not going to stop. Uh, When you were on the program on Thursday on the eve of the the protests, you know, we were talking about what you sort of, what you were hoping or how you were hoping the, um, the, the protesters would behave, you know, that, that the, the messaging would be correct, that the behavior would be peaceful. Um, based on what I've read and seen, uh, that's exactly what happened. It was very peaceful on your on uh, the, the protesters' part, correct? Ex- extremely
5: peaceful on our side. There were five arrests done, all from the counter-protesters that I'm aware of. And police did an okay job, but they could have actually used their authority and kept people separate. They could have just told the counter-protesters to get to the west side of the street like they wanted to. But for some reason, police are hesitant to use their authority. But I mean, we were pretty much as peaceful as possible. I was b- very pleased with how everyone was. Of course, when there are four or 500 people on your side, you can't control everybody. But, man, we I think we did an outstanding job. I asked people not to bring their own signs because if everyone brings their own signs, there's always bound to be some bad signs that the leftist media will pick up on and run with. But, man, I think we did as well as we ever could. And there was a fair amount of violence coming from the other side. They didn't want to let people walk freely, they formed a wall right across the entire road so that people couldn't walk down the road. So police actually had me go around some on some side streets to get in behind that wall, hoping it would stretch them out so that other people could get through. But it took at least an hour for many of my friends and supporters to even get through to come and see me, even though I was a block or two down the road. And I missed a bunch of the violence from the other side because it was quite far away from me. Where I was, it stayed pretty peaceful. It stayed very peaceful, actually. But all in all, tremendous success. Dozens of dozens of high school students came out from Broadview High School to express their support and thanks for me and it was just nonstop conversations. We ended up with a nice peaceful spot where everyone was together, and we accomplished our goal, which
2: was to reach millions of people across Canada and tens of millions all across the world uh There was one instance or at least one, but this one i 'm thinking of where uh, I believe it was an antifa um counter-protester, if you will, and uh, I believe he was Antifa, shoving a Muslim mother to the ground. Were you witness to that? I wasn't
5: witness to that. I wasn't witness to much uh, of any violence at all, just people trying to block me and some others. But no, I didn't see that. It's disgraceful. And the left is having a go at Muslims right now, telling them that they're going to behave this way, as in speaking out against the sexualization of their children. That they don't belong here, that that's not this the kind of country that Canada is. Well, I think they're allowed freedom of religion, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, how important is that now um, to have Muslim parents coming on, joining arms with Christian parents, Jewish parents? Uh, how important is that to this movement?
5: It's huge. I've been wanting this to happen for a long time. I've been waiting for... Christian pastors to get going. I've been waiting for the Muslim community to get going. And I'm very excited that they're finally speaking out. I know they're going to an Ottawa Carleton District School Board meeting next week as well. We've seen in the United States, the Muslim community is starting to speak up a lot. And they're a true community and they stick together. They fight back together. And they're not okay with what's happening to our kids. So a lot of them have been pulling their kids out of school I heard that in Nova Scotia, on the first day of the month, it's something like thirty-three thousand kids were kept home from school. That's tremendous. We need to send this message: we have a far-left political ideology being pushed upon our our children in schools. It has no business being there. We should not be teaching gender identity, which is a theory of the far left. It has no basis in science or reality. We should not be teaching that to kids at any stage. And we shouldn't be teaching sexual orientation either. It's nothing to do with the school system. We should be teaching reading, writing, arithmetic, science, the basics. Teach our kids to read. Literacy is way too low. So we just need to get back to the basics. And we're going to get there because Canadians are awake now. And we're never going to stop fighting until we win this battle. And we are never going to stop speaking up until they stop giving our children puberty, blocking
2: drugs, cross-sex hormones, and doing surgeries on minors as well. And of course, you were just in the U.K. a couple of weeks ago and uh, the U.K., uh, the NHS there on Friday, banned puberty blockers for uh, uh, transitioning children, uh, minor children. Uh, That's kind of another W. It's only a matter of time. I mean, I don't know how much longer they can ignore this reality in the rest of the world here in Canada. Your thoughts on that quickly.
5: Well, with our current administration, they can ignore it forever because they already know this and they choose to ignore it. This is a conscious decision. It's not like they don't have the information. They know it. Norway, Finland, Sweden, same thing. They've all put a stop to this progressive countries, but we have queer theorists running the country here in Canada and they're going to push this religious ideology, which is really what it is. It's a pseudo religion. They're going to push it as long as they can. We need to get them out of power.
2: Uh, Chris, what's next? Uh, what do you have uh, planned next?
5: I fly out to DC tonight. I'm going to be on Tim Cool's show on Wednesday night. So I'll do some stuff in DC in the next couple of days. Then I'm home. I'll be back home doing things in Vancouver. And then at the end of the month I'm speaking at a moms for Liberty conference along with Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy and a bunch of great people are coming up to that, about 700 moms and some dads too. So that'll get national attention all across the United States. And I just keep going one day at a time, one conversation at a time. You're doing great work, Chris.
2: You're doing the Lord's work. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. BillboardChris.com. BillboardGriss.com. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, Ryan, and Mike Karafalitis. Great work on traffic, Mike. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.